Well, as you can see, as I said, brothers and sisters, today we're actually going to be covering both chapter 21 and 22, which is a large chunk of Scripture, but do not despair. I think we'll be able to get through it actually fairly quickly and easily, uh, and much of it. There are some details that we'll have to go through and work through some things in the text, but much of it can be summarized kind of from a big picture perspective. If you remember, I said in the past few weeks that this last major division of the book of Leviticus from chapters 17 through 27 is often referred to by commentators as the holiness code, holiness code, since it deals with practical matters of holiness of the heart, not just mere ceremonial holiness, though much of that is in there as well. So far, everything we've seen in the holiness code up to this point, has been for the whole congregation of Israel, both priest and layman alike. But with chapters 21 and 22, God now directs his speech not to the sons of Israel, but to the sons of Aaron, the priests. Now, everything he said up to this point certainly applies to the priests, since they are members of Israel. Yet, in these chapters, we see some additional practical regulations of holiness that do not pertain to the larger body, or if they do pertain to them, as some of them do, yet their violation is punished more strictly among the, uh, the priests. This greater strictness and a greater requirement of holiness among the priests makes good sense when we remember that they were called to be especially holy among God's people. They were holy especially in terms of ceremonial holiness. It was they who entered into places that were ceremonially holy. They came into contact with the holy things of the Lord, and they entered into His holy presence. But they were also, we could even say even more so, to be especially holy in terms of their hearts and their lives, since after all, ceremonial holiness is nothing more but a picture of moral inward holiness of the heart. One old Puritan, John Stoughton, explained it this way. He says, If Uzzah must die but for touching the ark of God, and that to steady it when it was about to fall, and if the man of Beth Shemesh must die but for looking into the ark, and if the very beasts that do come near God's holy mountain be threatened, then what manner of persons ought they to be who shall be admitted to talk with God face to face as the angels and to bear the ark upon their shoulders? Is it not a ridiculous thing to imagine that the vessels must be holy, the garments must be holy, all must be holy, but only he upon whose uh, very garments must be written holiness to the Lord, he might be unholy. That is indeed a ridiculous thing to imagine. Now, in one sense, the priests were not really called to a higher standard of holiness than the rest of Israel, since all of Israel was really called to the same degree of holiness, which was nothing short of perfection. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself, both priests and laymen alike. It's not as though that was only to the priest and the laymen. You can love the Lord your God with 90% of your heart, 90% of your mind, and your neighbor just about closely as yourself, but not quite. It was the same for both. 
We might say, therefore, that they were called to the same standard in terms of the object and the goal, and yet in terms of judgment, the priests were held to a higher standard. Perhaps to say it another way, though the same sin might be found in laymen and in priests, yet in a priest, that same sin is more sinful due to that man's office and the example he was to be to the people of God. Really, this higher standard of judgment of the priests is exactly what James talks about in reference to New Testament ministers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Certainly true of the priests, because they were called particularly to holiness. Indeed, up to this point in the holiness code, we've seen God's great wisdom in stressing certain aspects of holiness to his people. He really hits hard particular sins because they're so dangerous to the spiritual health of his people, namely going after other gods and anything that violates marriage and the family. That's just disaster to the people of God. It should not surprise us then that God now turns his attention to the spiritual leaders among his people. Just as a lack of holiness in idolatry or in marriage and the family will rot the people of God from the foundation up, so a lack of holiness in her leaders will rot it from the top down. This was sadly, in many ways, one of the perennial spiritual problems of Israel in the Old Testament. Yes, the people themselves were responsible for their sins, and yet really the spiritual ups and downs of Israel are nothing more than a reflection of their spiritual leadership so often. For example, turn with me to Hosea chapter 4. really see this. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hosea 4, 1 through 6. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. In other words, there's no holiness found among the people of God, right? But then he says, Yet let no one contend. And let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet, another spiritual leader in Israel, also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. In many ways, that's the problem of Israel all the way up until the time of Christ, and that's what Christ is confronting. The people of Israel, to be sure, were guilty of a lack of holiness. They were not innocent. And yet the priests, the leaders, later on in their history, the kings, 
those who were to have a special care for their holiness, who were to be examples among God's people, who should have been able to say like Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. They were not. They were examples of wickedness rather than examples of righteousness. And they drew men away from God rather than serving to bring them near as they were to do as priests. Well, for those reasons, that great importance, we see these commandments for a stricter call to holiness and a stricter judgment to the priests. Now, there are many ways that we could consider this passage. I think ultimately, of course, this passage points to Christ, the great holiness of our high priest by which he entered into the presence of God and made a way for his people. And yet, since we have considered that many times before, today I would like, like us to meditate upon the great requirement of holiness in God's leaders for his church today as well as back then. Not surprisingly, as we'll see, the parallels between the requirements for priests in the Old Testament and the requirements for church officers, elders, and deacons in the New Testament are actually quite striking. It's really kind of funny how, how similar they are when you look at what Paul says about qualifications and the things that are touched on in this chap, these two chapters as well. I'd like us to meditate on that. Now, before you think, well, I'm not an officer. Great. I don't have to hear a sermon. Dennis, come on up front, brother. Joe's not here today. I'm just going to preach to you. You hold a mirror, and I just preach to myself, right? These are the only two church officers here today. Um, you're dead wrong about that, actually. Remember, as goes the spiritual leaders of God's church, so also historically, biblically, so also goes the church in many ways. And while some of these qualifications do not necessarily pertain to everyone here, you have a vested interest in the holiness of your church officers. You may even say your holiness to some degree is also dependent upon the holiness of those who serve in the church. And you have particularly our particular responsibilities and duties towards your officers in that regard. While leaders who fail are ultimately responsible for their own sins and not the people, yet the sins of leaders of God's people have such an impact on the body of Christ as many of you here know all too well, the people of God have a vested interest to pray for, to encourage, to even keep accountable their officers and make sure that they are holy. Well, let's consider this passage now, what it has to say about the holiness of priests, what that teaches us about leaders in the church today, um, and, and what are some particular responsibilities of the whole congregation as well. It really is very much, I mean, the ones who should feel nailed by this are the church officers, okay? Um, we are really the ones called to examine our hearts here. Yet I think there is um, some sense of a, a corporate responsibility to all see this. There's a vested interest. Well, let's go ahead. Um, I would divide, as far as an outline of these two chapters, I would divide them into five sections. If you look at the back of your order of service, I've kind of put an outline of here. There's five sections that each begin with the phrase, and the Lord said to Moses, or something similar. 
While we won't touch upon everything equally, it will very much be more centered on chapter 21 than chapter 22, yet we will summarize and consider both chapters, okay? Well, let's begin with verses 1 through 15 of chapter 21, which deal largely, I would say, with marriage and family and defilements that priests uh, are to avoid in those arenas, okay? Beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. Well, right away, we see that the rules of ceremonial holiness are stricter for priests in terms of coming into contact with the dead. As we've seen elsewhere in the law, disease and death, though not themselves inherently immoral, yet they are a picture of uncleanness and under the law often render one unclean. Nevertheless, since death was a normal part of life, especially in the ancient world, the mortality rate was much higher, coming into contact with the dead, you prepared the body for burial, that was inevitable, and becoming unclean was also inevitable, not necessarily morally sinful. The average Israelite was simply in a state of uncleanness for a period of seven days, and they had to ritually wash on the third and the seventh day, and then they would be clean again. Those are the only stipulations that I could find for the average Israelite. There's really no stipulations about which kind of dead they can touch, just as long, um, uh, just as, long as uh, they wash on the third and the seventh day. For the priest, however, this was different. They were to be particularly holy, and therefore to be especially on guard against uncleanness. And so while God does allow them to bury their dead, yet it is only for their most immediate family. Now, if we look at the list of people that they can become unclean for, there is one surprising omission. That is a wife. In fact, the way that the ESV translates verse 4, it almost makes it sound, at least that's how I first read it, that's how it sounded to me when I first read it, as though a husband may not bury his own wife. In other words, he can only bury those that he is related to by blood, but not by marriage. I don't think that that's actually the case, however. And though the wife is not mentioned, I think she's probably assumed to be someone you could bury since she was very close. I think the case for this falls basically for two reasons. First of all, I'm not entirely convinced of the ESV's translation of verse 4. Namely, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. All commentators that I read noted the difficulty of translating this verse. And indeed, when you try to translate it, uh, there's, there's several things it could mean. It's, it's not exactly clear. I think John Gill is probably the most correct, I think, when he translates it one of two ways. First, he says, but he shall not defile himself, 
being a chief man among his people. The term in Hebrew for a husband, guys, you're going to like this, means a lord, a ruler, chief man, right? Sarah called Abraham Lord, right? That's what it's talking about essentially, right? Um, And so it could also be rendered not as a husband, but as a chief among his people. In other words, since the priest is a ruler, he's someone of a high office, he especially shall not defile himself. The second option, which I think is also agreeable, is to render it as he shall not defile himself for any chief man among his people. Gill explains that this would mean that a priest could not bury, quote, a lord, ruler, or governor among his people. Even for such a one as these, he was not to defile himself, being no relation of him. Furthermore, the other reason why I don't think it's forbidding a husband from bearing his wife is that in verse 3, it pretty much implies that a husband will bury his wife. It says, he, the priest, may become unclean, quote, for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. In other words, if she were married, possibly to another priest, it would be that husband's duty to bury his wife. But since she has no one, he can do that for his sister. So even though a wife is not mentioned here, I think it's implied and they would have understood it that way. And many Jews historically understood it that way. Continuing on in verse 5, it says, They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. Now, all these practices, as we've noted before, are associated with mourning for the dead in the ancient world. And it makes sense that they're mentioned here, since this is dealing with burying and coming in contact with the dead. These rules were not just for priests here. In fact, in chapter 19, it forbids the average Israelite as well from mourning in such a way. Now, with some of these things, it's easier to see why they were forbidden than others. For example, harming your body cutting your body. In some places, it says branding the body. Obviously, that's sinful. And yet, it's not totally apparent why shaving one's head, for example, was a forbidden way of mourning. In fact, even Job, in his mourning, shaves his head, and he was very righteous. The answer is that these practices were also probably associated in one way or another with pagan worship, and so they were forbidden in Israel. However, For priests, they were doubly forbidden. Priests served in the temple, and mourning was not allowed in the temple, which is the place of God's presence, which required joy in serving the Lord. And so not only could they not mourn in that way, but especially so as priests who serve in the temple. Verse 7, They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, Neither shall they marry a divorced woman from or a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Here we see restrictions on who a priest, at least the average priest, could marry. They could not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. By defiled, it probably refers to either a woman who was violated 
or maybe someone who had somewhat of a sinful reputation amongst her people. Furthermore, she could not be divorced. Now, some of these things had to do with the morality of the woman. If she was a prostitute or she had a sinful reputation, she could not marry a priest. The priest and his household were to be examples to the people of God. And how could you have that with the, the high priest of God being married to a prostitute or a woman of bad reputation? Some of these are forbidden really not so much for any moral violation per se, but because of the great stigma that would be attached to the woman in the ancient world. That stigma would also become attached to the priest and thereby with God. This is probably why a divorced woman could not marry a priest as well. Um, it might be that she was divorced for something sinful, such as committing adultery, or she might have even been the innocent party, yet there was still a great stigma attached to her and from her, a high priest cannot marry. Verse 8, You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Here, God turns his attention not to the wife of the priest, but to his children. By implication, we can see that just as the wife is held to a higher standard, so also are the children. We see this in the fact that if the daughter of a priest is a prostitute, she's burned with fire. Whereas for the average Israelite girl to commit the same sin, according to Deuteronomy 22, they would be put to death but they would be stoned. Here, burning with fire is a more severe punishment. And really the reason for the severe punishment is she has profaned her father, it says, who is holy. John Gill comments that such a sin, quote, brings scandal and disgrace on any person and much more on anyone that had the honor of being related to a person in such a sacred office. And the advantage of a more strictly religious education and having eaten of the holy things of her father's house, all these were aggravations of her crime and made it more scandalous and reproachful to her. Furthermore, not only does it bring sin, a reproach upon the priest, but it may also and was very potentially a sign of a failure of, on his part as a father. And so he would be disqualified in that sense. Verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured and has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. 
Well, in verses 10 through 15, God basically deals with the other three elements he dealt with for the average priest, but now to the high priest. Because he is even more holy than the average priest, these rules are even more strict to him. Verses 10 through, uh, or verse 10 deals with ways in which he is not to mourn by letting his hair grow, uh, grow long or rending his clothes, nor is he to go outside of the sanctuary since he has the consecration oil upon himself. Commentators note this doesn't mean that they lived, uh, they lived in, the, in the tabernacle. I had a niece, and when she found out, I think it was when she was really young, she knew I was a pastor. She thought I lived in the church, right? Um, that was not the case with the high priest. He could go, but what this is talking about is he could, got, he could not go to the burial. He could not go out to the place of mourning. He was consecrated. He had to serve his official purpose. Furthermore, we see that he could not touch any dead bodies whatsoever, even for father and mother. That doesn't hit us as hard today, but in the ancient world, to bury your father and mother, to show them that great respect, to not be able to do so, that shows just how far he was supposed to stay from uncleanness. Furthermore, with marrying a woman, we see all the other uh, uh, prohibitions with one more is now added. He cannot even marry a widow. Perhaps she may have been a godly woman, and yet she was married. Perhaps the man she was married to was of a good reputation. Yet if she was previously married, even she cannot marry the high priest, though she might marry an average priest. The reason for this, as we have seen elsewhere, is that wholeness and other aspects of life are often a ceremonial picture of moral wholeness and purity. And so the wife of the high priest was to be holy, the high priest, and no other man's, even if she was innocent. All right, continuing on in verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Here we see that there were certain physical qualifications for the priests. This is not because uh, God is mean. You can just imagine uh, the, our society today, like this is the most ableist passage in the world or something like that. It's not anything to do with that. In fact, God shows a special place in his heart in the Old Testament, for example, for women who are barren, for eunuchs, 
for lepers. For those who would be ceremonially unclean, he often shows he has a special place in his heart for them. Nevertheless, they were not to serve in his temple or be priests. This was partly a very practical concern. A man with an injured hand might not be able to do some of the basic functions of a priest. He might not be able to carry the bowl of blood and sprinkle it. He might not be able to grab, uh, grab a handful of incense and hold the censer as he went through the tabernacle. A man with a hunchback or a dwarf would not be able to stand up over the altar and so place the sacrifices on them and remove them. These are partly quite practical. However, the other purpose, and I think the main purpose for this requirement, is that physical wholeness, as I just said, and normalcy is a picture of moral wholeness. The lack of any physical blemish was meant to teach us that those who approach God must lack spiritual blemishes as well. In fact, first and foremost, John Gill notes, the Jewish priests were types of Christ who's holy, harmless, without spot and blemish, and through whose blood and righteousness all who are made priests by him are unblameable, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so these priests were to be unblemished, and if their bodies were, how much more so were their hearts to be unblemished? Well, with that, we are largely done at looking in detail at our larger text today. What follows in the following chapter is related, but I will more or less summarize it as we move forward before we get to application. First, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 22 deal with impediments which keep priests from eating the holy things. Because they worked at God's altar, they were to receive their food, in many ways their living, from God's altar. And yet because the food was holy, they were to be especially careful not to profane it. And there are some additional practical laws about who could not eat these holy offerings as well. The fourth section, which is very interesting, you might say, why, why is this here? It deals with animals that could not be sacrificed. Which although we might say, why is this found in a, in a, in a section about priests? Yet, when you notice that many of the deformities mentioned forbidden in sacrificial animals are also those mentioned in priests, it actually kind of makes sense. In fact, this connects to an idea, I think this is explicitly establishing the connection, the idea which I have said before from Gordon Wenham, namely, that the animal world under the law in many ways mirrors the human world. Unclean animals represent those humans who are unclean and must therefore live outside the camp. Clean animals represent clean Israelites who can live inside the camp, and sacrificial animals, which like the priests, are not only clean but holy, those represent the priests. That is really driven home here by the fact that these are put right next to the qualifications for priests and Gordon Wenham notes, that's probably not a coincidence. Well, fifth and lastly, verses 26 through 32 deal with uh, a few additional laws about sacrificing animals, which makes sense because the previous section is about sacrificial animals, okay? Well, with that, that's the whole two chapters. It's kind of like drinking 
water from a, a fire, fire hydrant, but I wanted to get through it. Let's now slow down and turn to application. What I'd like to point out is that the two major concerns that we see in these chapters, namely that a priest be unblemished morally by implication, and that his family, his wife, his children also, by association, be in some respect unblemished as well, those two things are also the primary two concerns that Paul has for church officers in the New Covenant. Turn with me, for example, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here we see qualifications for both elders and deacons. Um, at first, I wrote this just thinking about myself and how I was supposed to be holy, and it's all writing on me. And then I realized Paul's also concerned with deacons as well. And, and if, uh, if elders are to be holy because of their office, so also are deacons. So I would also include them both. Of elders, what applies to deacons, Paul says in verse 2, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That last term there means literally blameless, faultless, not spiritually perfect as no one can be this side of heaven. And yet there is nothing that could be pointed to, we might say, as a spiritual blemish. There's nothing on them that is spiritually deformed. There's nothing in their heart that is lacking or missing something, they are spiritually whole, generally speaking. Interestingly, just as Leviticus goes on to list a various bunch of ways in which a priest, a priest must be unblemished, so also Paul goes on to give such a list. They must be a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. None of those deformities are to be found in the leaders of God's people. Similarly of deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience must be unblemished. Now, as I said, the call then of this is namely to myself and my fellow, or not my fellow, but my fellow officers, the other deacons. And I imagine Joe, I knew Joe would be sitting here and Dennis would be sitting in the back corner. And I would say, and I say to you, brother, this is truly a call for us to examine our own hearts or to take heed, to take this very seriously, we're to be unblemished, and we shall answer to God for it. Just as God says in Hosea, my people do this and that, they lack entirely any holiness. And then he says, but my contention is with you, O priest. Brothers and sisters, there are churches that are thrashed. They are wrecked. They're, they're like holding on to being a church by, by their nails, Right? Jesus is about ready to pull away that lampstand. But you know who he has a greater contention with? My contention is with you, pastor. With you, deacon. My people have a lack of knowledge 
and yet you have rejected my knowledge, and therefore I reject you. That's weighty. <laughs> I was stressing out as I was writing this. We're to take heed. It's interesting, I found, um, I think I'd heard of it, but I never read it before this. And I'm going to butcher the old Puritan title of this. I think it's called A Humble Acknowledgement of the Sins of the Ministry of Scotland, something like that. It's a very interesting document. I would encourage you all to read it. It's, it's very sobering, even if you're not a minister or a deacon. It was written by the Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland in 1653, when basically the country was in disarray. There were all kinds of things going wrong politically, religiously. The church was a mess. It had been a mess for several decades now. And what they do is essentially confess their sins. <laughs> they own to the fact that they, as the ministers of Scotland, in many ways had a chief hand in many of the things, oh, brothers and sisters, that is some of the most cutting things. I was like, oh, wow, I, don't, I need to take a break before I go on this. It just hits so hard on elders. doesn't quite talk about deacons, but, but it would also apply to them in many ways. Taking heed like that at times, reading such things, taking stock of our own lives is necessary because the stakes are so high. They're high for officers. We shall receive a stricter judgment. We shall therefore, we ought to therefore take heed. But the stakes are so high when we look at the state of the church often. Oh, how many churches have been scattered by officers falling into sin. How many times the witness, the glory of Christ's name has been brought to shame by ministers falling into sin. True, the people who fall away, who turn away, perhaps some of them are never believers. And even those who are and they suffer and they don't quite ever necessarily come back in this life, that's on them. But God will say to those men, my contention is with you. But for you also, church, there is a charge in this. You have a duty and a responsibility as well. You are to pray and seek to encourage the holiness of your church officers, since in many ways, in their holiness lies your own. In their holiness lies your own. Spurgeon speaks of this in his lectures to his students. He's speaking of ministers, but I think this applies to all church officers in one way or another. He says this, Remember, as ministers, that your whole life, your ministerial life especially, will be affected by the vigor of your piety. And if your zeal grows dull, you will not pray well in the pulpit. When your soul becomes lean, your hearers, without knowing how or why, will find that your prayers in public have little savor to them. They will feel your barrenness perhaps before you yourself perceive it. You may utter well-chosen words and fitly ordered sentences as aforetime, but there will be a perceptible loss of spiritual force. You will shake yourself as at other times, even as Samson did, but you will find that your great strength 
has been or has has departed. Christian non-officers in the church, if you would grow more in holiness through the means of grace, pray for the man who administers those means on the Lord's day. A minister who is full of holiness, administering the word of God on the Lord's day, the sacraments in prayer, he is a powerful instrument of cultivating holiness in the church. Do you pray for him? Would you like to see the church strengthened, well taken care of, their good sought, the weak in the flock taken care of? Pray for the deacons who do so. As you do that, you will see the church body strengthened. As deacons are encouraged in zeal, so also will the average member be I know that many of you, all of you, pray for me in one way or another, I'm sure. I would encourage you even more to be sure that you pray for your church officers. Pray for us. I, I, say, this, uh, I say this with no bitterness, and I have, I have no one in mind when I say this, okay? And I myself am guilty in terms of praying for my other fellow officers, the deacons, Okay? But I would say, how often do we pray very little for those who lead and rule over the church? And how often does our own holiness suffer because we don't seek and pray for their holiness? I would say you should also have a desire not just to see the holiness of the officers currently here established and strengthened, but to pray that God would raise up more officers and leaders I think right now in the church, I think in so many ways in our nation, in politics, man, we lack leaders. Leadership is lacking. Pray that God would raise up holy leaders. A holy leader is a powerful thing. And I would say, especially in our own churches, I don't say this with any fear. I trust that God will provide. But right now, speaking at least of Reformed Baptist churches, we're kind of in a transitional stage. A lot of the previous generation of pastors, they're getting older. They're retiring. The mantle is being passed on to men, myself, and even younger. Pray that in those churches, godly elders, godly deacons would be raised for the strengthening of the church. I would encourage you to ask your officers, how can I pray for you? How can I be praying for you? You could even challenge them. What are some ways you're growing in holiness? <laughs> it's okay to ask that. What are some ways I can encourage you, deacon, elder, to continue on in holiness? Come alongside us. Pray for us. The next thing we see in the concerns that we have in the book of Leviticus which is a direct parallel of Paul's concerns in 1 Timothy and in Titus, is that there is a great care to be had, not just for the officer, but for his wife and his children. That's a prime concern of Paul's as well. We see it in things like, 
where it says that both elders and deacons are called to be the husbands of one wife. They cannot stray from God's ideal of marriage. Furthermore, with the deacons at least, although I would say this is implied of elders as well, there are certain qualifications listed for their wives. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Calvin says, The wives of elders and deacons must be aides to their husbands in their office, which cannot be unless their behavior excel that of others. Now, I am a big proponent uh, of not just saying, but holding to the position that I am in ministry and my wife is not. Not only in the sense that I hold office, she's not First Lady Annika. I'd never heard that term before I moved to Texas. And if you don't know what it is, ask a charismatic or someone. They'll tell you all about, although you can probably understand what First Lady means. She's not First Lady Annika in the sense that she has no church power and authority as church officers do. She's also not in ministry in the sense that there are certain burdens that I just don't share with my wife. Sometimes the, the, the elders, the ministers in the association talk about this. They'll say, pray for me in this. I, I really just try not to burden my wife with this. I'm in ministry. She's in not. And yet, I imagine many elders and deacons' wives, when they hear the phrase, I'm in ministry, my wife is not, would probably smile a little bit. Because they'd say, I don't know, sometimes I really feel like I'm in ministry myself. I don't have church office. I don't have authority in that sense. But I am the helpbeat of my husband, and my husband's business is church ministry, and therefore, in a sense, it's also my business as well. Wives, therefore, have a great responsibility. They, too, have a great call to holiness. Just as elders and deacons ought to be examples of husbands and fathers, so also wives of officers ought to be examples to the flock. They're not first lady in office or authority. We might say, in a certain sense, they are first ladies in terms of wisdom, holiness, love. Since the eyes of the flock are upon them, and many a minister and a deacon has been disqualified, tragically, by failures in his wife. Furthermore, Paul mentions children. Just as the daughter of the high priest was mentioned as well, so also the children of officers are very important to that man's calling. He says in Titus 1.6 that the children of elders, by extension deacons, ought, quote, not to be open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Some actually argue that one of those words is the same exact accusation that the daughter of the priest was guilty of. I don't know if it's that strong, but some have suggested it. If they do, they bring great reproach upon the officer and thereby upon Christ. Furthermore, as with the high priest, so also with officers, it's very possible it's a sign of a failure of that man as a father and a husband. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
It's a pattern of sin in his life that will extend outward. On the one hand, I would say the call is to the wives of officers. Sorry, Terry, you're the only one here today. The boys are sick and Lila's, I don't know where she's at. I think she's in nursery. It's a call to examine yourself as well. I get it. You're not in office. We don't want to put any kind of unfair expectations on you. But you're the helpmeet of a man who's in office. So are the other wives of officers here. It's a high calling. For you, church, pray for the wives of your officers. Just as you seek to pray for your officers, so also in the holiness of the officers' wives, you will in many ways find the holiness of the congregation. Pray for them. How can I be praying for you? What, what, how can I encourage you? Seek to come alongside them. Furthermore, pray for the children of officers. I have a special place in my heart for PKs, so-called. As I just say PK, we all like roll our eyes like, oh, right? I do in many ways. I, I kind of feel bad for them. I kind of feel bad for them in the sense that they were born into it. They didn't choose it. Their parents choose it. They went into it voluntarily, right? Typically, the wife knows or at least consents to the fact that the man will be an officer. But the kids were born into it. There are often many unfair expectations put on kids. But there is also a very real responsibility, whether they want to or not, that it's there. They, by extension, reflect their father. That's a responsibility. Instead of being bitter about it, complaining about it, they ought to see it as an opportunity. In many ways, children of officers ought to be exemplary as well to the other kids. They ought to be examples of children submitting to their parents, spiritual examples. Furthermore, although it comes with responsibilities, it also, or at least it should, come with additional blessings. Remember, the daughter of the high priest was held to a higher standard in terms of judgment, but she could also do what many girls in Israel could not. She could eat of the holy things that came from the altar. There are many responsibilities, but also blessings of children of church officers. And rather than become bitter, they ought to seek to glorify God in it. Pray for the children of officers, brothers and sisters. Many officers have been disqualified due to insubordinate children. Pray for them. Pray that they would know Christ. Pray that their hearts would not become bitter. For children, although none of them are here right now. Um, my kids are at home. Santi's sick, and the Salazar kids aren't here. Um, your kids are all grown um, but for children of officers, I would say that the greatest duty they can do, the greatest way they can serve as examples to other children in their congregation is to make sure that they are found in Christ first. Rather than seeking to put on some kind of show, rather than trying to look like everything's all right in the pastor's household, we're all holding it all together. Oh man, you want to know how you can really be a blessing to the kids around you? Seek Jesus Christ and to be found in his righteousness and not your own. 
you will bless the children in your church more than you ever would with some kind of false righteousness. See Christ and Him alone. Well, with that, of course, the call is for us to consider and for you as a body to pray. I thought we might, however, end with something more hopeful. I'd like us to consider our great high priest. Be encouraged, church, that although there may be many ups and downs, as I said, a church may rot from the top down, yet ultimately the universal church, her head is very, very secure. He is holy and unblemished. No rot shall come from him, and he extends his holiness all the way down to the foundation so that no rot shall come from the bottom either. Have your hope in that. Men will fail you. And it's hard when leaders fall and it's all over Twitter and you're like, I can't believe that man that I listen to has fallen this hard. How embarrassing. Oh, hide your heart in Christ in those moments. For all of us in the many ways in which we've failed in our duties as officers, look to Christ, your great high priest who has washed away your sins. You're clothed in his righteousness. The wives of officers, you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. The children of officers, your hope is in Christ's righteousness. And for the congregation at large, though there might be many ways in which you failed to love your officers. Like I said, I don't say that with bitterness or with anyone in mind. It's just probably in one way or another we all have. Remember that your love for your great shepherd is not based upon your love for your under-shepherd. Christ's mercy has purchased your salvation and your justification, even when you fail to put those to, um, when you fail to love those that Christ has put over you. If we keep our eyes on Him, we shall find we all grow into holiness as we grow in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you because your unblemished son shed his innocent blood on the cross for those who were incredibly deformed and misshapen by sin. We thank you, Lord, that you have washed away our sin, that we are now righteous in Christ. We have his righteousness and his holiness clothing us, we stand in this by faith and by no works of our own. Father, I do pray for myself and my fellow officers. God, would you make us pant for holiness? Would you make us hunger and thirst after holiness? Would you make it of such a priority that all things fade, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ? Pray for our wives and our children. The same would be said of them. And I pray for us as a church that we would all grow in holiness. Oh, Father, protect us from evil. Keep us from falling into sin. We pray that you would protect us more and more and we'd keep our eyes on the great high priest and shepherd, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name.